Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Championship back when they were good. Back when you had Michael Jordan and Dr. J and Dominique Wilkins and Clyde Drexler. Back when the dunk contests were actually exciting. The 1986 slam dunk contest was actually very special, very interesting, because the year before, Dominique Wilkins won the slam dunk contest. He's six foot nine, he's a power dunker, he played for the Atlanta Hawks, but in 1986, his teammate went up against him, Spud Webb. Spud Webb is five foot seven. Now, for some of you, I told my wife, I'm just going to explain the slam dunk contest. She's like, no, just show footage from it. So for those of you who have never seen the footage, here's Spud Webb, 5'7", winning the 1986 slam dunk contest. So much hope for all the little men that played basketball. <laughs> there have been many, that, that last dunk's pretty awesome. He bounces it off the floor, goes off the backboard, he jumps up and slams it. That is five foot seven. I can't do that as six foot two. So um, that's pretty amazing. There's been a lot of famous short people in history. Uh, you can think of Napoleon, Charlie Chaplin, he was five foot five, Prince, five foot two. Yuri Gagarin, the first man in outer space, he was five foot two. Pablo Picasso, five foot four. Michael J. Fox, five foot four. Beethoven, five foot three. Kevin Hart, the comedian nowadays, five foot four. And I had to include Frodo Baggins, he's three foot six. <laughs> okay. Now, why do I bring up short guys this morning and slam dunk champions that are five foot seven? Well, we get to the famous passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 19 where we find out about Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree. Some of you know the song from a, from a child. This section in the Gospel of Luke pictures for us different ways in which Jesus saves sinners. Last week, we saw the blind man, blind Bartimaeus. He was begging on the side of the road he illustrates for us saving faith, what it means to place our faith in Christ, the blind beggar. Today we see the exact opposite of the blind beggar. We see a wealthy, rich tax collector. And he doesn't have to beg for money. 
because he takes money away from people through dishonest means. And if the blind beggar illustrates saving faith, Zacchaeus illustrates repentance. You see, the gospel has both of these two things together, faith and repentance. They're two sides of the same coin. As a matter of fact, Jesus, when he first came preaching in the gospel of Mark, some of his first words in Mark 1.15, Jesus says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe. Believe and repent. And so we're going to find out this morning what it means for Zacchaeus to repent. What is repentance? What does it mean to believe and repent in Jesus? So let's read this very famous passage of Scripture, starting in Luke chapter 19, verse 1. Let's read the word of the Lord together. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Verse 10 sums up the mission of Christ. I think verse 10 can sum up the entire Gospel of Luke. What's Jesus' mission? To seek and to save the lost. And so as we see a lost man, a sinner... Zacchaeus, let's see the mission of Christ unfold for us this morning. I want to see four truths in this account with Zacchaeus, four truths that emerge from this passage of Scripture. Now, the first one may not be as obvious as the others, but it's something that the Bible teaches. And here's the first. God prepares hearts by creating a spiritual curiosity. God oftentimes does a prior work in people's hearts to give them a spiritual curiosity. Now, we need to remember, Jesus is ultimately on his way to Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem to face his death, but he has to go through Jericho. And Jericho is an important city. Jericho was one of the three main cities in ancient Israel that was known for collecting taxes. Jericho was also a very fertile city. It was almost like an, an oasis. There were a lot of large trees there, large sycamore trees. Jericho is an important city. But more importantly, what do we learn about Zacchaeus? Does anybody know what Zacchaeus' name means? Zacchaeus means righteous one. That's kind of ironic, isn't it? Righteous one. Yet he's described here as a chief sinner. 
He's not living up to his name of being a righteous one. As a matter of fact, he is a great sinner. And he's a chief tax collector. Not just an ordinary tax collector, but a chief tax collector. He's the head of the racket. He's the kingpin. He's the mafia boss, if you will. Back then, tax collectors were despised because they worked for the Roman government. And they could do anything they needed to do, dishonest or extortion or bribery, to get as much money as they could as long as they could receive the taxes. So he's a dishonest man. And not just a dishonest man, he's at the top of the pyramid scheme. He's the top dog. He's the chief tax collector. And so in the eyes of the crowd, Zacchaeus, this wee little man, this this short man, he's despised, he's distrusted, he's an enemy of the people. He's a major, outrageous sinner. And he's short in stature. He can't see above the crowd. And one of the key words there that we see, and by the way, this is just a side note. You may disagree with me. This is not anything deeply theological. As a matter of fact, this is just a side note. This is Pastor Sean's opinion. If they were to typecast Zacchaeus, I think Danny DeVito would be a good person to play the role. I've always pictured Danny DeVito as Zacchaeus. I don't know why. But again, not something deeply theological, just something that I've, in my weird brain, I think about sometimes. One of the key words in this passage in verse 3, he was seeking to see Jesus. He was seeking. It's a strong word in the original language. It, it really means to search out, but with no success. To be desperate, to go to great lengths, but not to really have those needs met. Almost all throughout the Gospel of Luke, we see this word seek in, in people being desperate and actually being ingenious. And being and using ingenuity. You remember back in Luke chapter 5 when you had the paralytic and his four friends came and they, they broke through the roof and they dropped the paralytic down in the middle of Jesus' teaching? That same word. Luke 5.18, Behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed and they were seeking. Same word there. They were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. These four men were desperate to get to see Jesus. They brought the paralytic in. Zacchaeus is desperate. He's seeking. He's, he's got this intensity. He wants to know who Jesus is. Now, we don't know why he wants to know who Jesus is. Perhaps he had heard about how Jesus had treated tax collectors. Maybe word got around to Zacchaeus that Jesus is the one that he eats with tax collectors. He eats with sinners. Back in Luke chapter 15, when we had the parable of the prodigal son, the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him, to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So perhaps Zacchaeus had heard about this reputation of Jesus being a friend of sinners. And so what he does is he does something very undignified in that culture for a, for a grown man. In that ancient Jewish culture, no grown man would run. Notice he says he ran, and no grown man would get up in a tree. That's stuff little kids do. They play in trees. They run. But no self-respected grown man in ancient Israel would run in public and get up in a tree. But Zacchaeus doesn't care. He doesn't care what the crowd thinks because his whole thought process, he's consumed with seeking Jesus. He's got a strong desire. He's got a curiosity to check Jesus out. Now, why? 
You have to step back and ask some questions. What's going on? The text does not explicitly come out and tell us what God is doing in Zacchaeus' heart. But we do know from the scriptures that God often sends the Holy Spirit beforehand to get a heart prepared and ready to receive the message. God brings conviction. God plows up the soul of those that he's going to bring the gospel to. And as a matter of fact, that's what we should be praying for this week in Vacation Bible School, that God would be plowing up the hearts of these children to bring them to a a curiosity to know more about who Jesus is, that God would be doing this work in their hearts. John Calvin said this, Before revealing himself to men, the Lord frequently communicates to them a secret desire by which they're led to him. While he still concealed and unknown, and though they have no fixed object in view, he does not disappoint them, but manifests himself in due time. Sometimes the Lord puts a secret desire in the hearts of people to want to check out Jesus, to seek him out. In fact, the Bible says nobody can call out or confess Jesus as Lord unless the Holy Spirit's done a work in their heart. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. You can't confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior unless the Holy Spirit does a work in you to bring you to that point of confessing Jesus as Lord. How are you saved? You're saved by calling on the name of the Lord. How can you call on the name of the Lord unless the Holy Spirit has done this prior work of grace in you to birth faith, to cultivate that desire in you, to work in you? Paul says in Philippians 2.13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God is doing a work in Zacchaeus, the same way that God did a work in you before you came to faith. Now, you may not have perceived it, you may not have understood it, but God was doing a preparatory work in your heart to get your heart ready to receive the gospel. He was plowing up the the hardness in your heart. He was getting you ready. He was preparing you. Now, we don't know why Zacchaeus was moved to get up into that tree. All I'm thinking is, like a little boy that, that's at a, at a parade, you know, like the parade downtown, and a little boy can't see, so he, what does he do? He gets up on his dad's shoulders so he can see what's going on. All Zacchaeus cares about is, I want to see this Jesus. I don't even know if he's going to talk to me. I don't really know if I want to get close to him, but I just want to see. So I'm going to climb up in a sycamore tree. I've got curiosity. I want to get it above the crowd. I just want to kind of check things out and see what's going on. So that's the first thing we see is that oftentimes God will do a preparatory work, a prior work of grace in your heart through the Holy Spirit to get you ready to trust Christ for salvation. Now, it's different for everybody how God does that because it's mysterious and sovereign, but God often does this preparatory work. Now, I do not think that Zacchaeus expected Jesus to single him out that day. Here's the second thing we see in this passage of Scripture. Jesus sovereignly and effectually calls sinners to himself. Jesus sovereignly and effectually calls sinners to himself. Just go back and look at verse 10. The Son of Man came to seek. Who's doing the seeking here? At first glance, it looks like it's Zacchaeus. 
Zacchaeus is the one who's seeking Jesus, but if you look closer at the text, Jesus has been seeking Zacchaeus all along. Jesus is the one that's doing this calling. It's a divine appointment. Jesus is going to interrupt Zacchaeus' life. Notice what happens there. So in verse 4, he, he ran ahead, climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And then look at verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. There's an urgency there in what Jesus says. Notice he says, Zacchaeus, you need to hurry down. I'm coming to your house today. This is something you can't put off. I'm coming to you. I'm interrupting your life. You need to get down from this tree. And I'm sure Zacchaeus is like, wait a minute, you're you're talking to me? I just got up in this tree to see what was going on. And notice what Jesus says there in verse 5. I must stay at your house today. Did you catch it? I must. This is a divine imperative that I must do. Nothing's going to stop me from my sovereign will of staying at your house today, Zacchaeus. I must do this. I'm sovereignly going to do this. I'm going to interrupt you and do this. I think it's funny here because Jesus doesn't ask Zacchaeus, hey, would it be convenient if I came into your house today? Hey, Zacchaeus, do you want to run ahead and get your house ready so when I come in, it's not all cluttered? Hey, Jesus, uh, hey, Zacchaeus, maybe I'll come back tomorrow. What What does Jesus say? I'm coming today. I'm barging in. I'm boss. I'm sovereign. I must come to your house today. Zacchaeus, I'm coming. I'm not asking your permission because I'm the Lord. I'm coming to your house. And why? Why is it an imperative? Why does Jesus say, I must do this today? Well, it's keeping within his mission. What's his mission? Verse 10, to seek and to save the lost. Here is a lost man that Jesus is seeking and he's going to save. I love the way J.C. Ryle describes this sovereign calling of Jesus. He says this, Unasked, our Lord stops and speaks to Zacchaeus. Unasked, he offers himself to be guest in the house of a sinner. Unasked, he sent into the heart of a tax collector the renewing grace of the Spirit and puts him that very day among the children of God. Jesus, I didn't ask for this. Jesus, I don't care, Zacchaeus. I'm coming to your house today. And not only am I coming to your house, I'm coming into your heart. I must come and seek and save the lost today. Here's a truth that you need to understand. For those who sincerely desire to know Jesus, your search is never in vain. If you really, really want to know Jesus, if you have that curiosity to seek Jesus, He will be found. Now, why do you seek? Why do you search? You may think, well, this doesn't make sense with what Paul says in Romans 3, because Paul says in Romans 3, verses 10 through 12, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. Okay, there you have it, Paul. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Okay, Paul, no one seeks for God. Why is Zacchaeus seeking Jesus out? Zacchaeus is seeking Jesus out because God has put a desire in his heart to seek Jesus out. It's a work of grace that God is doing in Zacchaeus. It's a supernatural thing. God is overcoming the spiritual deadness in our hearts to give us the grace to be able to want to come to faith in Christ. Paul says it this way. 
in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. In our deadness, we do not want to seek Jesus. In our deadness, we don't want Jesus. We can't trust in Jesus. We don't want to believe in Jesus. We cannot, unless... And that's a very important word there, unless. Unless God does a work of grace in your heart to give you that desire. What do we see here? God makes us alive in Christ. What did Jesus say in John 6, 44? No one can come to the Father, or no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Okay, Jesus, no one can come. What does that mean, Jesus? No, no one can come? Nobody in and of themselves has the ability or the desire to come to Jesus. You don't want to. You can't. You can't seek Jesus. You can't. Unless. What's the unless there? Unless the Father who sent me draws him. The Bible speaks about this drawing. The Bible speaks about this making alive. The Bible speaks about this supernatural power that's effective. It's effectual. Dare I say, it's irresistible. When God is going to draw you to himself, you cannot say no. The reason you come to Christ, the reason you seek Christ, the reason you believe in Christ is because God has first done the work to bring you to that point. He's made you alive. He's drawn you to himself. And you may ask the question, well, why did God do this? Why did God draw me? Why did God birth faith in me? Why did God make me alive? Why did God cause me to be born again? Let me give you what the Bible's answer is. The answer is, is because before the foundation of the world, God chose you to be saved by his sovereign grace. Jesus says in that same passage of Scripture in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Okay, the Father gives us to Jesus. When did that happen? That happened before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, the Father gave you to Jesus, and at a point in time when the Holy Spirit opened your eyes, opened your heart, you freely came to Jesus in faith. You desired him. You thirsted for him. You wanted him. Now, you can be scared of that doctrine, or it can be absolutely comforting to know that God's the one that sought you out, not you're the one that sought God out. Who's doing the seeking here in this passage of Scripture? At first glance, it looks like Zacchaeus. But what does Jesus say in verse 10? The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. God always takes the initiative. He chose you. He birthed faith in you. He made you alive. He caused you to be born again. He took the blinders off your eyes. He gave you a new heart. Never in a million years left to yourself would you ever want to come to Jesus, nor would you have the power to come to Jesus unless God first took the initiative to make it so in his grace alone. We would still be dead in our sins. Think about a great honor it was for Jesus to enter Zacchaeus' house. How much more valuable a gift for Jesus to come into your heart. 
Have you trusted Jesus with your life this morning? Are you like Zacchaeus? Do you seek him? Do you want him? Do you desire him? What's the third truth we see in this passage of Scripture? The third truth we see are great sinners joyfully receive the great Savior. Great sinners joyfully receive the great Savior. Now, we don't explicitly see this in the text, but I'm sure Jesus caught Zacchaeus off guard. He interrupted his life. I must stay at your house today. What if I don't want you to, Jesus? I don't care. I'm coming to your house today because I must. Okay, how does Zacchaeus respond? Look at verse 6. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. There's no delay. Because Jesus is Lord and he's calling me, there's no delay. Jesus, Zacchaeus hurries down. And notice what it says. He receives Jesus with joy. There's a joyful acceptance of Christ. That is saving faith to joyfully receive Jesus as your Savior, to receive Him. Again, the Holy Spirit brings this conviction into our hearts. The Holy Spirit takes the blinders off our eyes, and then when we first see Jesus as glorious, as beautiful, we receive Him. And we don't receive Him begrudgingly. Well, I guess I better trust in Jesus because there's nothing else to do. No, it's a, I want Jesus. I need Jesus. I must have Jesus. Jesus, I'm receiving you with my heart. I'm receiving you with my life. I'm receiving you with joy. John 1, 12-13, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Why did you receive Jesus? Because you were born of God. God gave you that ability to believe, to receive Jesus. Phil Riken makes this insightful comment. He says, The welcome Zacchaeus gave to Jesus is a reminder that faith is a matter of personal trust and not merely a matter of propositional belief. That's very important. You can have propositional truth in your head as far as who Jesus is. We talked about this last week. You can know in your head who Jesus is and not have personal trust in Him as Lord. You can have all the facts, but never actually personally receive Him into your heart, into your life. And Zacchaeus joyfully receives Jesus, not only into his home, but more metaphorically into his life, into his heart. As Savior. What's the main issue with Zacchaeus? Why has everybody all been out of shape? Well, he was a great sinner. He's a chief tax collector. Look at verse 7. When they saw it, I'm assuming it's the crowd. Maybe there were some Pharisees there. Who knows? When they saw it, what did they do? They grumbled. They got upset. They murmured. Jesus, what are you doing? Do you, do you know who this man is? He's a bad dude. Why are you going into his house? No, Jesus, don't go into his house. He's a chief tax collector. He's a sinner. He's, he's a bad dude. He's gone into be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Don't go into the sinner's house. He's a great sinner. Don't do it, Jesus. You're going to contaminate yourself. He's a bad 
do. Now, what I find interesting in this passage of Scripture is that nobody says to themselves, nobody stops and says to themselves, you know what? I'm just as much of a sinner as this Zacchaeus dude. He may be a chief tax collector and he may be the enemy of the Roman people, but I'm just as bad as he is. I'm just as sinful as he is. I wish Jesus would come to my house. I wish Jesus would come in and and change my heart. Everybody's pointing fingers at Zacchaeus and nobody's pointing fingers at themselves saying, I'm a great sinner in need of a great savior. They're saying that man's a great sinner. That man, Zacchaeus. But Jesus went into his house and changed him forever. And here's the fourth thing we see. Repentance is the fruit of sovereign grace. Repentance is the fruit, not the source, but the fruit. We need to be very careful here. We need to understand the order of salvation. Because you can misrepresent or you can misinterpret what happens here. Because what you see happen here in verse 8, Zacchaeus stood up. So Zacchaeus is standing. He's making a confession of faith. He's doing something. And what does he say to Jesus? He says, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. I'm going to give away 50% of everything I have to the poor. That's a huge deal. So not only is he going to give away what he has to the poor, he takes it a step further. Notice what else he says. And... The second part of verse 8 there. If I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. They really only had to do it twofold, according to the Old Testament law. He says, I'm going to pay back, I'm going to pay restitution four times as much as I've defrauded anybody. Now, we need to be very careful here. Zacchaeus does not do these things to earn salvation. He doesn't do these things to look at Jesus and say, look at how good of a person I am. Because I've given my goods away, then Jesus, I've earned your salvation because look at how good I've done. That's not what's going on here. Zacchaeus does not do this to earn God's grace. He does this because he's been changed by God's grace. What happens to you when you get saved? Let's put it this way. What happens when Jesus comes into your life? What happens? 2 Corinthians 5.17 happens. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Why does Zacchaeus give away 50% of his goods and, 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 and promise to pay back four times as much? Is it so he can get into God's good graces? No, it's because he's a new creation in Christ. He's got a new heart. He's got new desires. He's got new ambitions. J.C. Ryle has said this, the heart that has really tasted the grace of Christ will instinctively hate sin. What was Zacchaeus' identity for years and years? I want to accumulate as much wealth as I can by any means possible. Dishonest means, defrauding, bribery. My drive, my desire is to get rich at all costs. And all of a sudden now, it's not just he's made a moral reformation or he's, he's turned a new leaf on life. He's been changed inwardly by grace, and now he's repenting because of that radical transformation of heart. And I want you to notice something interesting here. He uses the present tense verbs. Did you catch it? 
Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it. Notice he doesn't use the future tense. I'll pay it back one day when I feel like it. I'll restore it one day when it's convenient. Uh, It's not this vague repentance where Zacchaeus kind of says, when I kind of get around to it and feel like it, I'll do it. No, he uses the present. Luke here uses the present tense verbs to show us that this repentance is immediate. It's the fruit of a changed life. Zacchaeus has repented unto life, as Acts 11.18 would say. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Zacchaeus has experienced repentance that leads to life. Acts 26.20 Also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. That's what Zacchaeus is doing here. He's already had the inward heart transformation. He's just doing deeds as an outflow, as the fruit of what's happened on the inside. He's repenting in tangible, concrete ways to show that he truly has had a change of heart. Anthony Hokema, he's a, he's a scholar. He defines repentance this way. He says it's the conscience turning of the regenerate person away from sin and toward God in a complete change of living. I like that. A complete change of living. Your life is totally different when you become a Christian. It's marked by repentance. Thomas Watson, I think, has the best definition. Repentance is a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. Zacchaeus was inwardly humbled by the grace of God and visibly reformed by giving away his goods and being generous. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 says this, for they themselves report concerning to us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's repentance. Turning from idols toward the living and true God. What did Zacchaeus turn from? He turned from the idolatry of his money towards Jesus and faith. So this act of restitution, this act of generosity was not Zacchaeus' way of saying, look how good I am, Jesus. You've got to owe me salvation because I'm being so generous. No, it's just the exact opposite. Jesus had invaded his heart, saved him by grace, and as a result of being a new creation in Christ, Zacchaeus says, I'm a new man, and because I'm a new man, I'm going to live a life of repentance. And it's not vague. It's not nebulous. It's not I'm going to get around to it someday. It was immediate, and it was concrete, and it was tangible. Contrast Zacchaeus with the rich young ruler we saw a few weeks ago. Remember the rich young ruler? Walked away sad because he had great wealth. He didn't repent. Zacchaeus repented. Remember what Jesus said about that? It's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Go back and look at chapter 18 for a moment. Back in chapter 18, just one verse back in your Bible, After the rich man walks away and Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Look at verse 27. But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Zacchaeus is living proof that salvation is possible with God. Zacchaeus could not save himself. 
Zacchaeus could not clean his act up. Zacchaeus could not morally reform his life. Zacchaeus could not, could not do anything to earn salvation. Jesus sought him and saved him and changed him and brought him new life. And their repentance was a fruit of that. And notice what Jesus says about Zacchaeus. He says there in verse 9, Today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. Zacchaeus, you're a son of Abraham. Okay, well, that's, that's good. Of course Zacchaeus is a son of Abraham. He's Jewish. Isn't every Jewish male a son of Abraham? No. Just because you're ethnically a Jewish Israelite does not mean you're automatically a son of Abraham, the way the Bible talks about it. Earlier in Luke chapter 3, when John the Baptist is preaching, he says, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So what does it mean that Zacchaeus is the son of Abraham? What does it mean to be a son of Abraham? Well, let me just put it this way. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, you too are a son of Abraham. Paul tells us this in Galatians. Galatians 3.9. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham the man of faith. And then Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Zacchaeus is not just an ethnic Israelite son of Abraham. He's a true child of Abraham because he had faith in Christ. Then verse 10 is the mission. Verse 10 is the succinct statement of what Jesus has come to do. Notice verse 10. The Son of Man came to seek. That's the same exact Greek word that was used earlier for Zacchaeus. Now remember when I said it was used of humans, that word seeking, when it's used of humans, it almost always means a desperation and you never get what you're finding. You're seeking with desperation. But when it's used of Jesus, is that what it means? Is Jesus ever frustrated? Is Jesus ever desperate? No, when Jesus seeks, he seeks with success. Jesus is never frustrated. Jesus is never disappointed. When Jesus seeks you, he will find you. That should give you great joy that Jesus sought you. He came to seek you to save you. He's the good shepherd who came to the lost sheep and laid down his life. It's very interesting. This statement that Jesus says here, I came to seek and save the lost, it's almost really a picture of what we see in the Old Testament when God is seeking the nation of Israel. Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 11 and 12. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when, that, when, when he is among the sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. God says in the Old Testament, I'm going to search out the lost sheep. I'm going to find the lost sheep. Zacchaeus was one of those lost sheep who heard the voice of the great shepherd, Jesus. And when the voice of the great shepherd, Jesus, called to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus answered with joy in his heart. What did Jesus say about himself in John 10, 14 through 15? 
I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus came to seek the sheep, but to save. Now, how did Jesus save us? Was it a hypothetical? He just kind of said, hey, I'm going I'm to save them. No, it was an it is finished, full atonement. Jesus died on the cross. He took our penalty. He took our sin. He took God's wrath. He took the penalty. Jesus died in our place as our substitute on the cross for our sins, crying out, it is finished. He came to seek, take the initiative, seek us out, and to save us by the cross. But I don't want us just to pass over that last word, the lost. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. That word in the original language, apollomy, apollyon, you get that from it, it means to be condemned to eternal hell. That's what the word lost means. When you, when you see the word lost in the Bible talking about people, it means those who are condemned to eternal hell. And it's in a Greek tense. I'm not going to bore you with it, but it's in a Greek tense that says that if you don't get out of that condition, you will be permanently under God's wrath in eternal hell. It's something that's eternal unless Jesus saves you. So, I wonder what you think about yourself you can look at this narrative and say, well, that was really cool that Jesus saved a really bad tax collector. A short guy got saved. Awesome. But do you ever stop and say, I'm a chief sinner. I'm the worst of sinners. I'm lost. I'm hopeless. I'm helpless. I'm hellbound. You know, the crowd was pointing their finger at Zacchaeus and looking at him and how bad he was. I wonder, do we, do we look at ourselves and say, you know what? If it were not for the grace of Jesus... I am the worst of sinners. I read this earlier to us during our time of confession, but let me read it again. It's Paul. 1 Timothy 1, 15-16. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Doesn't that sound a lot like what Jesus says here? Jesus Christ came into the world to seek and save the lost. Paul says that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. I'm the worst. But I receive mercy. For this reason, that in me as the foremost, as the worst of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him to have eternal life. Zacchaeus was a grave, deep, dark sinner. Paul was a grave, deep, dark sinner. And we can look at Zacchaeus and we can look at Paul and we can say, I'm glad Jesus saves deep, dark sinners. But do we often think about ourselves? When we look in the mirror, I'm a deep, dark sinner that deserves nothing but hell. But Jesus came and he sought me and he saved me and he searched me out and he came and he rescued me. Hebrews 7.25, we opened our service with this. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus came to seek and to save to the uttermost, to the bitter end, with all power and authority. He came to seek and to save the lost. He has the power 
to save you this morning. You're not here today by accident. If you're here today, it's because God wanted you to be here and you need to hear the message. God sought you out. God sought you. He's seeking you. He saved you. He's got the power to save you. The question is, are you going to draw near to him? Are you going to be like Zacchaeus when God calls to you and says, get down from your tree and come home? When God invades your life and says, grave sinner who's hell bound, I've come to save you. Is your response like Zacchaeus? Where you get down from that tree and you run as fast as you can into the arms of Jesus and you say, thank you, Jesus, for saving me. I receive you joyfully. Would you please be my Lord and Savior? Would you turn from the idols, the idols of sin, and would you trust in Jesus alone to forgive you. My prayer is this. We would all fall on our knees this morning with this overwhelming attitude, I am a great sinner. But praise the Lord, I've got a great Savior. His name's Jesus Christ, and He came to seek and to save the lost. And that describes me. And without Him as my Savior, I'm hell-bound, I'm helpless, and I'm hopeless. So I'm casting myself humbly upon Jesus alone as my Lord and my Savior. My prayer would be that every single one of us could walk out these doors today with the assurance to know that Jesus came to seek and to save you. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. thankful that you came to seek and to save the lost every single one of us without you Jesus are lost we're hopeless we're helpless we're hell bound we're the greatest of sinners we are steeped in our idolatry and there is no hope left to ourselves but Jesus we thank you that you took the initiative You didn't expect us to clean our acts up and come seek you and come save ourselves, but it's the exact opposite, Jesus. You came to seek and to save us, something we could never do in a million years. So my prayer, Lord Jesus, is that we would all be like Zacchaeus. Today, no hesitation, we would receive you joyfully as our Savior and Lord. If there's anybody in this room, Lord Jesus, today that does not know you as Savior and Lord, would today be the day of salvation? The day they cry out from the bottom of their heart, I'm a sinner, I need Jesus, I need forgiveness. Jesus, would you please save me? Would today be that day? And Lord, for those of us that have done that, would we never get over it? Will we never get over the fact that we were the worst of sinners and we deserve nothing, but Jesus, you came and you rescued us from the pit, from the sewer of our sin, and you gave us new life, and you raised us up, and we're forgiven, and we're child, children of the Father, and we have new life, and for that, our lives are a continual thank you. Would our lives be marked by repentance, turning from our idols, 
changed living, visible reformation that would come only from the Holy Spirit doing that work in our hearts. So Lord, will we be a people that are always believing and always repenting? Yeah, we believed and repented when we first became Christians, but we're always believing and we should always be repenting as a lifestyle. And we can only do that by grace. So thank you, Jesus, for your grace. Your grace alone. Your grace is enough. Your grace is sufficient. It's by your grace alone. So thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, you came to seek and to save the lost. We love you. We honor you. We praise you. It's in your name that we ask these things, Lord Jesus. Amen and amen.